Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. The Muppet Christmas Carol or Haunt the Rich. <laughs> I've got the I've got the Marley song stuck in my head. Oh, uh, it's a banger. It's just a, it's We're just Molly and Molly. <laughs> Hello everybody. And Hello. That is what we're opening up with. <laughs> uh it's your horror vanguard and we continue with technically technically horror movie Christmas. Uh I'm John, joined as always by uh co-ghost and producer extraordinaire Ash. Ash, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing doing so good. I I am I am doing great though all things considered i mean it's 2020 every every positive thing i say comes with a caveat that weighs several metric tons how are you doing today well it's it's been a pretty good day for 2020 so (laughs) that tells you everything you need to know (laughs) (laughs) i mean when we correct for 2020 late stage capitalism the collapse of empire you know i'm doing great (laughs) yeah yeah uh and we're talking about another another classic um, holiday film, a, an adaptation of um, a classic of nineteenth century English literature. Possibly, I, I would I would argue maybe the best adaptation. Of- I, this is this is the definitive version. I think I think it's better than the source material. Uh, and and I was going to say uh, it's the best adaptation, not just of this source material, but of adaptations generally. Um, yeah, you know, I'll agree with that. <laughs> the The Muppet literary adaptations are kind of universal bangers. Yeah, just uh, completely flawless in in every way. They have no right or need to be that good. Um, but we are talking about we are talking about the Muppets adaptation of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Um, and now, like. Sometimes I I almost feel a little bit silly doing this, but for for the people, Ash, for the people, for for the people, uh, who have and have not seen this film, would you mind explaining what what happens in the Muppet Christmas Carol? Yeah, you know, I'd I'd be pretty surprised if uh, our our listeners haven't seen it. But here's a here's a quick refresher of the the plot for this uh, absolute classic of puppetry. The Muppet's Christmas Carol is the story of many individuals. We have in one hand our main players in Scrooge and Bob Cratchit, and the other our driving forces in Tiny Tim and our ghastly Yuletide spirits. However, there is a character that rests in neither hand, for he is found under the weight of a Christmas goose twenty times his size. The Muppet's Christmas Carol has many players, but it is only the story of Bean Bunny. Bean Bunny is the disheveled, miniature, leperine Muppet we meet towards the film's opening. Bean Bunny is first heard before he is seen, a telling attribute as the lowest rungs of the working class are blocked from our collective sight, and only emerge once their voices reach our ears. Bean Bunny is caroling door-to-door in an attempt to earn a living. In the reality of his soul, Bean Bunny is an artist, a singer lifting up the grey and soulless streets of a Victorian commerce district with the beauty of folk art. Scrooge, ever want to earn his reputation, 
denies Bean Bunny payment for these services and instead hurls a wreath at him. A wreath which is approximately five times his size. When we first meet Bean Bunny, we meet him as a beggar, carving out a life in the frigid hell of middle capitalism. After Scrooge is put through his supernatural torment, he learns nothing of importance. His first act after being jettisoned into a world of self-pity is to further abuse Bean Bunny. Flinging open the windows, Scrooge demands, first, that Bean Bunny tell him what day it is. After Bean Bunny delivers this base unit of information, Scrooge belittles and patronizes him by referring to Bean Bunny as a smart and good lad. We do not know Bean Bunny's age or education, and Scrooge cares not to learn it. Scrooge then forcibly conscripts Bean Bunny into carrying a Christmas goose that is no doubt a crushing weight. This conscription operates by way of wage labor. Bean Bunny, a beggar, is forced to comply with Scrooge's wishes lest he starve out in the cold on Christmas Day. Despite an attempt at salvation, Scrooge continues to forge the chains he shall carry in his death. Bean Bunny remains silent and forgotten for the rest of our film. As we celebrate Scrooge ascending to the moral decency we expect from most common houseplants, <laughs> Bean Bunny vanishes. Has he succumbed to the death sentence that is poverty? Is he home with loved ones benefiting from the sliver of wages he has earned on this holy day? A day that all others have off. We shall never know. Dear listener, we walk hand in hand with Bean Bunny, and we shall continue to do so until we learn the lessons our own holiday ghosts are attempting to teach us. These are the lessons of solidarity, friendship, and giving. Bean Bunny, my brother, you are not alone. Your comrades in the working class await your company. Come and warm us with your song, and we shall provide for your needs such that we can. Until that glorious day when Scrooge's ill-gotten gains are returned to their rightful hands. To all of the Bean Bunnies out there, may you hear this message of holiday cheer. Solidarity, and Merry Christmas to all. Hell... Yes. <laughs> every, like, in all sincerity, every time that we do this, every time that, that me and you are lucky enough to sit down and do this, uh, in, in, the, in the days leading up to when we record, um, you know, we, we, we have, we have, we always have like a little doc where we put our notes and ideas. And there is always at the top of the document, just, just two words or sometimes one word, which is ashes, pricey. Um, and I always think to myself, you know, I always try and guess what it is you're going to do, what it is you're going to say. <laughs> and have, have you ever been, have you ever been close or no, correct? No, never even close. <laughs> no, and, and in all sincerity, it is, it's genuinely amazing. You just do not, I'm, I'm begging you just to miss once, but you, 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 just, you just never do. <laughs> oh, why thank you that, that that brought me some holiday cheer um, um but before before we start our discussion uh we we're going to talk we have to uh reach out to you we this podcast is effectively one giant act of wassailing and now we are uh, humbly chanting at your doorstep to please throw us a pence uh here is a word from our sponsors this program is made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Go to patreon.com slash horrorvanguard and get access to bonus episodes and other exclusive content. Thank you for listening and stay spooky. It's not wolves, it's 
wolf in 20,000 years. Ten times your fucking Christian era. Let us begin. <laughs> Let us begin with this musical adaptation of a short story or novella from the 1840s done almost entirely by puppets and Michael Caine. Um, where would you like to begin? Where should we dive into this discursive field? I think I think the best the best place to jump into this is to jump in where the film starts us, and that's with the idea that bosses are weird. And and when I say weird, I mean like capital double weird, capital W weird. Mm-hmm. They are weird in the in the Fisherian sense of the term, right? These are these. Are, this is something that is here that is present, but should not be. And that causes just this eldritch ripple throughout our lives. And I think that. We, we kind of see that with the character of Scrooge, right? You know, like we've got that line from Gonzo where he says, even the vegetables don't like him. <laughs> you know, like the, the hatred of Scrooge is totalizing everyone. The, the entire town, including inanimate objects, despises this yep. man's existence. Yeah. Uh, his very first introduction, he has a kind of weird occultic power to control the weather. Because mm-hmm. uh, isn't it Rizzo who says, ah, did it just get colder in here? And <laughs> yeah, we get we get that like, you know, I think I think uh, this occurs a little bit later on, but we get that really telling shift, right? Where like and, and I mean like anybody who has ever worked any job ever knows this experience, but like the second Scrooge leaves, all of the workers immediately start not only doing their jobs more effectively, but also enjoying their labor for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. So he he is not only rightfully hated but he is also uh, anti-productive he, he is extra useless he yeah it actually in hip like there's this really kind of classic thing of like uh if you increase productivity your profits will go up you'll, you'll get more value out of the people who work for you but actually increasing productivity in scrooge's case only happens when he leaves, when the boss is no longer there. <laughs> uh, which I just love when they close up on uh, December the twenty fourth. Um, you know, he keeps he keeps his uh, his bookkeeping staff entirely uh, made up of Muppet rats. Uh, I think Rizzo's extended family. That's who it is. Uh, I think. <laughs> I mean, he, he does have what what is it like over one thousand seven hundred brothers and sisters. So, in all yeah. likelihood, he is related to these other like, Muppet rats, distant cousins. Maybe let's just say that uh, that they're, they're all they're all freezing. They're all deeply unhappy. Uh, and uh, Bob Cratchit is forced to ask for Christmas Day off. Um, but yeah, uh, they they disappear. They disappear. Um, he, well, where he disappears, and like then they actually feel like they can get some the kind of joyous job of closing up for Christmas done. And that just, that, that just stresses the, the weird presence of the boss as a figure in our society, right? Like what is this thing doing here? Right? Like bosses are eldritch entities. And I think Scrooge winds up being maybe one of the most effective depictions of this. I think it's really interesting 
in a way, in a way, it's a very kind of self-aware adaptation, but in a way, it's a very, it's very traditional. It's very traditionalist in certain regards as well. Mm -hmm. um, and in a way, this is something that I think you can see in the original story that working class in this story or the poor lack political agency. Like everybody hates Scrooge, but it doesn't seem like they're able to do anything about his existence. Yeah. You know, there is no, like, uh, he evicts the poor guy who is, like, uh, asking for, for leniency on his mortgage because his family's been sick. You know, uh, he threatens his, his workers with unemployment. Clearly, there is no collective bargaining. They only get Christmas Day off because they all ask together, even though it's Bob Cratchit. He's forced to the front. But, like, I think this is a real, that's an, it's an interesting holdover of the source text, which is that, the poor have a kind of like cultural collectivity. There's lots of song and dance numbers, you know, everybody's there together except when Scrooge turns up, but we don't have any, it's not a vision of any kind of political agency. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean like that's, that's a through line that runs through this entire movie is that it culturally and, and on like this kind of like a, a bit of uh, ephemeris societal level, we, we do understand what is going on here. Right. There are so many lines of dialogue and lines and songs in this movie uh, that effectively tell you how bad landlords are and that the whole idea of having to rent property is a scam. However, it, you're absolutely right. The, the political will is missing. And I think when we when we get on to talking about charity, we can really drill into this. Mm, yeah, we will. We will dig down into that. Um, but there's a there's an interesting line from from Michael Kine as uh, as Scrooge. Um, actually, just before before I say anything else, uh, I'm I'm me and you. I suspect are going to be a little bit critical about this film at various points. But I just want to say, I love this movie. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Just, the, the production in here is amazing. This this movie is great, uh, and it is it is one I watch every year at this time of year and i will continue to do so um but there's an interesting line there's an interesting line from kane where they're talking about this idea of getting uh christmas off and he says uh that's a poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every december mm -hmm. 25th and it's like just the goal of scrooge as a character uh to complain about time theft right and, and that's exactly what this is right he is he is without using the language accusing people of wanting a day off as being engaged in time theft when we all know like time theft it, it literally can't be a thing this is your time here on this planet earth you cannot steal it from your boss they're not entitled to this and like the the it counterpoints against wage theft right because like he's refusing to give them coal to make sure that their uh, office is adequately warmed throughout the winter and we we will find out in a little bit just how little he's paying Bob Cratchit. Yep. <clears throat> but like he is he is committing wage theft on a, a horribly disproportionate and disgusting scale, which is exactly what we live through, right? And like like wage theft is the single biggest sector for theft. You know, like yeah. like uh, without question. And like as as kind of like the adage goes, like. Imagine what happens if your boss shorts your check by $100. What can you do about that? What's going to happen if that happens? Probably nothing. You know, what happens if you took $100 out of the till before you went home? You know, you're yeah. going to get arrested. You're going to go to jail. You're going to lose your job. 
right? Our, our entire society is rigged up to defend wage theft at the expense of everything else. Uh, I'm just going to say it. Time theft is good. <laughs> oh, yeah. Seriously, if you, if you can get away with slacking off on the job, 100% do it. Yeah, and if, you, if you can get away with doing it, organize with your fellow workers and do work slowages and work stoppages to your advantage. Uh, the the official the official HV line is: if you can listen to this podcast whilst you're at work. Uh, <laughs> that is that is one of the ideal settings for enjoying this podcast. But like, it's a it's a pretty straightforward point, right? Which is that I I, I want to set up maybe an unnecessary distinction between like. Uh, labor and work. Marxists have written about this quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Which is that that labor, the act of kind of doing things, of transforming the world around us, is a kind of essential part of human life. All of us have things that we enjoy doing actively that will make a difference. It might be uh, music or video uh, making. It might be writing. It might be uh, building things. It, you know, whatever. And that's that's something that we all that that lots of people have. Right, work is alienated labor it is a corruption of something that is kind of very core to the to to us and we should not be celebrating the idea of work in the traditional capitalist sense as a good thing it's not a good thing you know uh, you give up years of your life of your time of your your energy of your mental and physical health of your you know of your soul uh, in return for subsistence wages, wages that allow you to keep doing that same thing. Um, but, you know, this is why the concept of alienation in Marxist theory is so interesting and important, because it allows us to understand that despite what we are told by every kind of ideological apparatus that surrounds us, uh, including, I would add, uh, movies for kids, <laughs> being a good worker it's not something that we should aspire to. Our aspirations should be much higher than just being a good worker. Uh, yeah, exactly. And to like dovetail that into uh, something something deeply grounded. I mean, like we don't need the bosses. The bosses need us. We we have never needed bosses for anything in the history of human society. Bosses cannot accomplish anything. Yeah, totally. full full stop. Right. What what these what the rats in Scrooge's office need, what Bob Cratchit needs, what what Bean Bunny needs is the IWW. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, in its most militant form. We need a bunch of redneck minor Muppets <laughs> to, to yeah. go to the streets of London and educate these these Victorian uh, uh, felt creatures. <laughs> uh, just just a bunch of of Muppets with red bandanas tied around their necks, fire <laughs> bombing Scrooge's office and just des- destroying all of the mortgage records. <laughs> Oh my God! Solid solidarity with our direct action Muppets out there. <laughs> uh, that's what should happen in the Muppets movie. Just, just that's all we're saying. Wait a minute. When they eventually, when they eventually do the sequel and we get Muppet Christmas Carol two, I really want it to be like the Revenge of Tiny Tim. <laughs> but oh, uh, I, I think so in in the world of the Muppets, uh. I think, or in the world of the Christmas Carol in general, because a lot of the dialogue is just pulled from the story. Mm-hmm. 
um, as, as it should be for an adaptation, like perfectly acceptable. Um, one thing that I think is kind of worth highlighting though, is like, this is, this is for children, you know, and it's like, it's accessible. It's very light, but I think that like, we don't really give the weight of Scrooge's depravity to him that we should, right? Like Scrooge is not kind of your redeemable, uh, uh, he's got a heart of gold but it's accreted in all the horrors of society he's not that kind of a character this man is poisoned to the core yeah this this man is awful yes and and i think for me the line that really hides this is like scrooge is a eugenicist Mm -hmm. and this is like i'm not i'm not saying this to like score like a uh a tumblr viral post like hashtag muppets genocide but like you know, we we get that line from him where he says that that we need to uh, decrease the surface the surplus population. Yeah, you know, like and like that is he's literally riffing on uh, you know Malthus, right, and Malthusian uh, fucking genocidal politics. Like that is what that idea is nodding towards, right? It's the idea that there are just, there's just not enough to go around for everyone alive, so a bunch of people have to die. Yeah, and when you start thinking about that, who who's going to do the dying? is always the question and it's always the capital O other, right? It's always the poor. It's always the racialized other. It's always somebody else. And so like what we, what we get in that line there and the movie doesn't explore this. And that's, I mean, like it's a, it's a kid's movie with puppets. So I didn't expect it to, but like what we get in that line is like Scrooge cozying up to genocide. I mean, let's, let's kind of be historicist for a second, right? This is an incredibly common idea in 19th mm-hmm. century society incredibly common um dickens who wrote a christmas carol was a good middle-class liberal in lots of ways was involved in this idea of social reform and trying to improve the lives of working class and poor people but this was still something that was accepted as common parlance so within two years of publication of a christmas carol there was also published uh, a book called the condition of the working class in england written by frederick engels and there is a quote from that book that I would like to I would like to share um, directly linked to what Scrooge says. Um, so when Scrooge is confronted by uh, Professor Bunsen and Beaker um, about uh, giving to charity, uh, where he says, "You know, are there no poor houses? Are there no workhouses that the poor can go to?" Uh, and one of them replies that they would rather die. And he says, "Well, they should do it and and reduce the surplus population." So Engels says this. Malthus declares in plain English that the right to live, a right previously asserted in favor of every man in the world, is nonsense. He quotes the words of a poet that the poor man comes to the feast of nature and finds no cover laid for him and adds that she bids him begone for he did not before his birth ask of society whether or not he is welcome. This is now the pet theory of all genuine English bourgeois, and very naturally, since it's the most specious excuse for them, and has, moreover, a good deal of truth in it under existing conditions. If, then, the problem is not to make the surplus population useful, to to transform it into available population, but merely to let it starve to death in the least objectionable way, and to prevent its having too many children, this, of course, is simple enough provided the surplus population perceives its own superfluousness and takes kindly to starvation. There is, however, 
In fight, in spite of the violent exertions of the of the humane bourgeoisie, no immediate prospect of it succeeding in bringing about such a disposition among the workers. The workers have taken it into their heads that they, with their busy hands, are the necessary and the rich capitalists who do nothing. The surplus population. So my my big question walking away from this is where is the Engels Muppet? <laughs> this, this this movie would be improved so much is if if instead of Scrooge getting visited by ghost, Cratchit was visited by by two two friendly uh, scholars and and agitators. I mean, well, this is the thing, right? This is the this is the good liberal bourgeois answer to the inherent immorality of capitalism, mm-hmm. right? So we can't have anything that challenges the system. What has to happen is there has to be an external to the system, in this case, something which is literally supernatural, that will restore a kind of good, uh, universalizable moral center to what they're doing. Oh, but, and we we are getting there. <laughs> but I, I, I am, I'm really kind of struck by the fact that A Christmas Carol and A Condition on the Working Class in England were written and published so close together in the mid 1840s. Um, and there are some kind of fascinating overlaps between, because this is the point that Engels makes, right? Scrooge, Scrooge is not uniquely uh, evil. He is not uniquely no. evil in the system of bourgeois capitalism. Uh, as he puts it, this is now the pet theory of all genuine English bourgeois. And if Scrooge is anything, that is exactly what he is. And I think that I think that's really important to highlight. And and again, we're gonna we're gonna dig into this much deeper when we start talking about charity and the film's closing. But like it, it, it is very telling, like who who's our protagonist? Our protagonist isn't Cratchit, right? He's a secondary character. Our, our protagonist is Scrooge. Mm-hmm. You know, our, our yep. protagonist is the story's villain. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's and it's and really, here's here's where we get the kind of the interesting conflict if we put Engels and Dickens into conversation via the medium of the Muppets Christmas Carol, uh, which is not a sentence I was expecting to say, but here we are. <laughs> so you have the structure of the text, which individuates him, right? Which makes this an individual story, whilst at the same time you have this historical critique from the time of the original text production that says, actually, this is the universal condition of people like Scrooge. This is what they all think. And they say it openly. They, you know, they say it to the people who are there to kind of do good things. Well, they should just die because it would be easier and cheaper for me in the long run. Muppets. (laughs) Well, should we talk about what this film... So... Every, I mean, I'm pretty sure most people have, have either read Christmas Carol or um, have kind of seen an adaptation. Maybe at, at, at this point, even if you don't know, you have you've probably culturally absorbed the story through some retelling or another. Um, so the the point is, Christmas Eve, Scrooge goes home. Uh, he goes back to his property. He has a supernatural experience, um, and he is told that he is going to be visited by three spirits before the end of the night. 
Um, uh, he's going to be visited by the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come. So should we talk about each each three? Should we talk about uh, all of the ghosts that come? Yeah, let's talk about the ghosts and let's talk about them in order, which means we're going to start with the one that is more frightening than it has any right to be in the Muppets Christmas Carol. <laughs> that, the, the ghost of, so, all, so we get the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas future. Uh, present and, or I guess the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Uh, yet to come and present are Muppets. Mm-hmm. The ghost of Christmas past is a phantasmal uh unheimlich child uh, uh trapped between ethereal planes whose whose harmonic voice chills the soul <laughs> yes basically um and do you have so why why do you think that is why is this um, not a muppet <laughs> I'm I'm sure there's a really there's a really good like real world reason for this, but like my my reading of this is that like so when Scrooge visits these kind of three alternate time frames, and like the, this movie is in concert with It's a Wonderful Life, right? It's a Wonderful Life and Scrooge are very similar movies in a lot of respects. Um, but when we when we visit the first the past with the ghost of Christmas past, it's the only time where Scrooge really registers pain. Mm. You know, when he's in present, he's in the in the present. He's like having fun for part of it. And then like he gets mad that he was insulted and then he gets uncomfortable by watching a sickly child die, you know, and, and then when he visits the, the future, he he's a he's afraid you know, he's afraid of legacy. He's afraid of of death and mortality. But it's only when he goes to the past that he actually has to reckon with his actions. You know, like this is this is the time when he is most viscerally concerned with things, and he's concerned with how he misremembers himself as a child, right? And like we have we have that entire sequence where he falls in love, and then his his only true love abandons him because he is more devoted to work than he is to her. And I think that's that, that for me has always been why the ghost of Christmas past is the most frightening one is because from Scrooge, from Scrooge's perspective, it is the single most frightening thing, right? He can change the present and he can change the future, but all of the failures and all of, of the suffering that has led to who he is today is immutable. I I also think it's bound up with a memory as well. I, I completely agree with you um, because there is something like we all have our our self perception we construct a narrative about ourselves and we we incorporate into that certain formative events that have happened to us in the past and i i can genuinely think of nothing kind of more existentially horrifying than having the opportunity to see those events from the outside and from an external point of view and to be confronted by that yawning chasm between how you are perceived and how you understand yourself. Like that's, that's a really scary thing. Like, I mean, even on a simple level, I'm sure all of us have like memories of like the time that we said something really stupid at a party or like had a social faux pas. And we kind of think back to it and go, Oh, the, the, the pain, and it's painful because you can't do anything about it. But on a kind of bigger level, that that 
that's what he has, right? He has this kind of like idealized image of his own past and then is confronted by the realities of his own abandonment, uh, of his own bitterness and anger, even at a very young age. And that that's 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 a really scary moment. Yeah, and I think it's 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 more than an idealized past, right? It's a subservient past. Right? His his past needs to be the way that he has structured it in his mind in order to allow him to continue to justify his present day actions. Right? He he isn't a string of failures leading to him becoming a horrifying monstrosity that even the vegetables in a town have grown to hate. His past is a is a bunch of necessary sacrifices that have made uh, him a man of fine business acumen. Uh, as as this little this little glimpse into his past indicates, right? Uh, because there is there is a very famous line delivered by the magisterial Sam the Eagle. Uh, I don't have the right accent. <laughs> I, I don't I don't have the right accent for it. So um, it, it, you will like business it is the american way <laughs> uh gonzo has to come in and like pulls him down and kind of whispers and he goes oh, really yeah. it is the british way <laughs> so the thing about this line that i really love is that it, it kind of reminds us of how temporally unseated this rendition is you know, like like a, a Christmas Carol is like rapidly approaching two hundred years old, and it's still relevant. It's still an accurate depiction of the society in which we live. You know, like the only things that have changed in two hundred years have been some costuming, uh, some some work conditions, and you know, we we don't really do Christmas goose anymore. That's a bit dated. Yeah, but like that's it. the The bones of the story remain completely intact. And I think, it, you know, it definitely not intentionally, but it does serve to also remind us about colonialism, you know, because the, the American context exists because of European and, and British powers colonizing these spaces, right? The, the world we live in today is the direct results of, of that, that, um, that work of empire. And like Sam the Eagle tripping up on whether or not this is a British thing or an American thing does remind us that both of those things are deeply unified in a historic context in terms of the the colonialist projects that they represent. Yeah, I can't think of any better indictment of the shared uh, imperial project of capitalist empire than Sam, <laughs> and Sam the Eagle smoothly admitting that in the contemporary, yes, it is the American way, business. You will like business. But given that we're in a historical 19th century British setting, it's British as well. Yep, they did it first. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a very, very important. There's a lot of quick subtleties to the Muppet Christmas Carol. And like each each one of them opens up a whole world of wonderful discourse. Um, and you see that as you kind of move through his history that um, and come into the present that like that that business uh, basically sort of takes over him body and soul because you get into the present, you see the ghost of, of Christmas present, who is a large uh, red haired, jolly Muppet who is uh, taller than Michael Caine. Um, and they dance through the streets together, singing a song. Uh, and you see a flashback to one of his first jobs uh, at Fozzywig's rubber chicken factory. <laughs> uh, Fozzy, uh, maybe one of the kind of pure uh like uh 
good-hearted egos of of the Muppet universe just there to have a good time. Uh, throws this regular Christmas party, but he's incapable of like entering into things, right? Because he's still worried about business. You know, you're at a, you're at a kind of festive time of year where you're not supposed to be concerned with uh, pounds and pence. But he goes up to him and is like, "Do you know how much we're spending on this Christmas party?" And it's kind of so sad when you see that like capitalism will reduce everything in your life to just a balance sheet. I think one one of the things that struck me because I love I love Fozzie as as a Muppet, you know I, I love I love that because that, that's one of my favorite kind of characters is like the the comedian who performs their act by failing, you know, like like the boob and the buffoon. Like I love that. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's been that's Fozzie's identity. But going back and watching it this time, right? I think the, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the thing. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna use my my Marxism point for today. <laughs> yeah, let's go. But I think there's, <laughs> there's there's something really sinister about Fozzie. Um, because Fo- Fozzie is being, uh, uh, or Fozzie Wig, rather. Fozzie is just the, the meta actor being portrayed by a puppeteer. But um, the, so the sinister thing about Fozzie Wig is, is what, what is his function in the narrative? Right? We're, we are, he is, he is there to be juxtaposed to contemporary Scrooge. Right? Contemporary Scrooge is not throwing a Christmas party. Contemporary Scrooge is telling his office workers to freeze or starve in the cold. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Fozziewig, on the other hand, oh, no, he's going to throw a party and everyone can come to his party and have a good time. But like the fact that Fozziewig is able to throw that party is exclusively structured upon the fact that he's exploiting his laborers. Oh, you know, yes. that, that that he's participating in this system. Fozziewig is there to remind us that there are good bosses and you can be a good boss. You know, like that is the function of Fozziewig in this narrative is that Scrooge could have wound up like Fozziewig, a good boss still filthy rich and entirely uh, uh, basing his life on evictions and exploiting the working class. Cause you know, I mean like Fonzie Wig runs a rubber chicken factory yep. and he runs a rubber chicken factory in Victorian London. <laughs> right. <laughs> just, just, just Google, Google what the industrial revolution was like in England. Cause you know, you know that his house is in London, but his workers are in sh- like uh, Yorkshire or Lancaster or something. Uh, it's it's a little known fact that one of the chapters of Das Kapital Volume One, uh, called the conditions of the uh, the uh, the working day in the rubber chicken factory, uh, details <laughs> details like quite quite horrendously that like the there were muppets in the factory with like burns from hot rubber, uh, you know workers had lost uh, limbs uh, or you know appendages from being crushed under crates of rubber chickens. Uh, they were forced to work, you know, 12 to 16 hour shifts uh, without break. So I th- you're making a very good point. And that's, and that's, I think it's important to underline that, right? Like there's an ideological project that Fozziewig is defending or that Fozziewig's character defends in the context of the text. And that's the instantiation of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I'm, I am absolutely here for this reading. Uh, as someone who also really loves Fozzie. That, 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 that's my clickbait. I think I think like um, everyone's probably seen there's like a clickbait article where it's like, you know, like, like, is Scrooge really the hero? Is he a good guy? There's like tons of stuff like that. But Fozziewig is the real villain. Oh, there's my there's my there's my boom, 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 boom. So, so like the baby brain libertarian take is Scrooge is the hero. 
the the <laughs> the absolute galactic Marxist brain take is Fuzzywig is the real villain. <laughs> Perfect. I love this. All right, that's our episode, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming. <laughs> Dickens was a moralist, right? That the, it, it, he's a he's a moralistic writer. He isn't writing uh, as a kind of uh, political writer. I mean, he's very good at character. He's he's he can write good jokes, but he's a moralist. So it's not a surprise that like at regular intervals, like the poor, the sick, the vulnerable, are held up as these kind of paragons of virtue who only if we cared more they would be okay yes yes and i think one of the things that's going on here is that like textually tiny tim's condition is directly the result of scrooge being a scrooge Mm -hmm. right his existence is causing tiny tim right like like tiny tims are the results of of the capitalist class but you know, as as we work our way towards the topic of charity, this the way that this movie works through Tiny Tim's character and arc is, I'll just go for kind of disappointing. Um. Yeah. I mean, do you want to say more about that? Um. I'm gonna I'm gonna say because uh, charity, I think, is the big the big topic that that one's gonna connect in with. Uh, yes, and and we will we will we will connect all that up. But like, if there is one kind of positive moral thing from this story that I think we can take, it, it's a very simple fact, uh, which is that we need to haunt the rich and terrify them. <laughs> uh, not not only not not just that because I think that's the limitation of this 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 film and this book, but we need to. Uh, and as this this text shows us, we actually need to appropriate the wealth of the rich, not just for our collective good, but for their collective good. Because if there is any chance of the, the vastly wealthy becoming human, uh, it is only going to happen if we take away their obscene wealth that, that, that you know, corrupts your very soul. Uh, so start haunting mcmansions that's all i'm gonna say <laughs> i think i think i mean that makes makes perfect sense though. i mean like we have we have the marley's yeah right? we have marley and marley and like they're both the, the, you know like just literally in the text the chains that they wear in death were forged by their actions in life absolutely you know and and their actions in life were literally just being capitalists right the same thing is happening to scrooge before eyes it reminded me of monsters of the market right mm, yeah the, the whole idea of like you know the, this accrual of wealth that generates negative psychic energy uh so uh david mcnally for the next edition of monsters of the market please include uh at least one chapter on the muppets christmas carol <laughs> <laughs> No, you're right. There is there is this there is this idea that not only are you doomed morally now, you're doomed for all time. You're hated now. You're going to be hated forever. Um, I was saying before we recorded, there is uh, there is an adaptation of uh, Christmas Carol where Scrooge literally ends up being sent to hell and has to escape from 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 literal hell um, as the consequence for everything that he's done. Uh, but also, can we just add the Molly song? uh absolute uh just a a a plus songwriting Uh, classic banger is is that one it's a great great song for any occasion uh indeed indeed 
And I think well, one of the things one of the things that I think is really interesting here is that like so so now we're onto the ghost of Christmas yet to come, right? The ghost of Christmas future, and mm-hmm. like it's literally so it's at this point in the narrative where you realize that Scrooge is an intractable dumbass. Um, <laughs> three uh, up to up to this point, two two ghosts have been like, "Hey, buddy." Let's let's take a look at some of the places where you could have done better. And now the third ghost is like showing him scenes of a man's death. Right. And everyone in the town is like, oh, fuck this asshole. No one cares that he's dead. And and Scrooge just keeps looking at this Grim Reaper going, who could they be talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and like, it's just it's just like, come, come on, man, you really some, some somewhere around that second ghost, if we're being generous, you should have started picking up the pieces hey, for this one. <laughs> hey, is this hmm, is this maybe about me? No, it must be some other guy who everyone hates. <laughs> and, and I think this like he has nothing. He has no legacy. He has nothing to leave behind. You know, it's just it's just materiality for him. It's just people picking up his stuff and selling it, right? And like. That's that's the legacy that that's left by capitalism, right? Is there's no there's no heart there, there there's nothing there's no bond with your fellow man. There's just trinkets that they can consume and repurpose later on to try and fend off the the fucking crushing weight of poverty. Exactly. Um, and again, uh, I'm gonna I, another angles quote that kind of speaks to this directly. It is utterly indifferent to the English bourgeois whether his working men starve or not, if only he makes money. All the conditions of life are measured by money, and what brings no money is nonsense, unpractical, idealistic bosh. You know, people won't even go to his funeral unless, unless you know, there'll be, like, food provided for them. You know, uh, people who come into the house literally sell his very bed clothes uh, and remark that it's the only warmth that he ever had in his entire life because he all he cared about, all he focused his attention on was money. And there are certain things uh, which uh, reject and refuse commodification. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I, th- I think one of them occurs, in, and again, contrasting this with It's a Wonderful Life, right? Because it, It's a Wonderful Life opens up with a town's prayers trying trying to lift up a man who's at his worst. And, and this is a man who has literally dedicated his entire life, has sacrificed so much to try and help his community in whatever way he knows how. And and so the movie opens with just just everyone praying for his salvation. And and for that, he is he has sent a cosmic deity to to help him get on the right track again. Uh, the Muppet Christmas Carol opens up with uh, literal fruit and vegetables and some barnyard animals singing about how much of a dickhead Scrooge is. <laughs> and, and for that, he is haunted by five separate specters, um, all telling him that he's a complete fuck up and he needs to change his entire life. Stop. Stop being a piece of shit, you asshole. <laughs> 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 we needed a sixth ghost and that's the ghost of being really straightforward <laughs> um there is there is something interesting uh, if we're going to get into muppets christmas carol kind of deep lore here um that there was a cut song from the film so um i think it was it was in the theatrical release 
but in the home video release, it was cut by Jeffrey Katzenberger, who thought that it slowed the film down too much. Uh, and given that it was a ballad between two romantically involved characters, uh, thought it wasn't super kind of interesting for a kid's film. Um, so there is a scene in which young Scrooge and Belle uh, have a conversation about why they haven't got married yet. And he says it's because they haven't made him enough money. She she twigs that he that's all he cares about and she leaves. There is a song that goes there uh, called The Love That we, We've Lost, uh, which is designed to show why Scrooge is the way that he is. Uh, he is the way that he is because uh, of a broken heart. Um, right at the end of the film, there is uh, a final song with some excellent Michael Caine vocals called uh, The Love We Found. So it's interesting that they cut the the kind of individual moment, but they retained the kind of callback to that song, which makes it a collective moment. I just thought that was a kind of interesting detail. I mean, I, th I think it winds up being really important, right? Because if you leave that in, the narrative goes someplace really terrible, which is that Scrooge is a bad person because a, a woman didn't leave behind her own goals and values to love a jerk. You know, like, I think that it's a very good decision that that was not in the final product of the film. Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, and it makes the kind of political reading of it uh, potentially a little bit more interesting. Um, but we've been dancing around this. There is something that we have got to talk about. Um, we should talk about... We should. So Scrooge basically has a kind of religious experience, right? He gets He has a conversion experience of confronting his own death and being reborn and he decides he's gonna fix society and he does it uh through charity so let's talk about charity shall we yes <laughs> um so so to, in order to talk about charity we need to talk about what charity is and what charity isn't and i think that's a really important uh, uh, space to carve out here, right? Because we're we're all kind of like uh, uh, engineered by our society to see charity as the ultimate good, right? Charity is how you fix social problems. Charities are the answer to the ills of society. Uh, charities are not charities. Charities are scams. Mm -hmm. You know, these these are these are ways that a charity is a buoy in the sinking ship of capitalism. Right, it's it's a way to obfuscate the mechanics of what's going on here, um, and and I think like I always contrast uh, uh, charities between solidarities and scams, right? Like it, when when you are walking down the street and and someone someone is like you know asking for change and you give them like you know a couple bucks or something, that's not an act of charity. That's an act of solidarity. You are directly supporting another member of the working class. You know, like like that is a direct exchange of funds between people who need them, right? It's not a charity when like 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 food not bombs, not a charity, right? Like these these things aren't charitable. You know, char charities are where billionaires funnel their funds in order to avoid taxes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it is it's sporadic. It is done often on the basis of moral or religious convictions rather than on genuine universal need it is a means of controlling those who are uh, vulnerable and in need of support mm -hmm. um and it's uh it's paternalistic uh 
you know, Scrooge, uh, they even say in the closing of the film that Scrooge becomes a kind of second father to Tiny Tim. And it's like, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, how dare you? <laughs> like, this idea- he, does, he, he doesn't need a second father. My God. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. a, un, an unbelievable act of paternalism. Yeah, and, and and this is and this is what we're getting at here. Like when I was talking about Tiny Tim earlier, like Tiny Tim does not require your charity. Tiny Tim requires medical attention. You know that should be provided to him by society. He doesn't need some benevolent lord to deem his existence worth it. Exactly. You know, and this this is the limited purview of what we're dealing with here because like it's not just Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim. It's that dozen or so rat workers that are in there with all their little rat families and their little rat tiny Tims. You know, Scrooge doesn't care about them. He gives them extra buckets of coal. You know, he, he's not he's not deigning to alight upon their residencies and and providing for the medical needs of their kids. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's the illusion of charity, right? You can't replace uh, a, a something that needs us like healthcare. Healthcare can't be done through charity. Right, because healthcare is a systemic society level problem that requires a systemic and society level solution, not a bunch of like disconnected organizations attempting to like go fund me people's cancer treatment. Yeah. I mean, there's a really telling line, right? He finds uh, Dr. Bunsen and Beaker and says that he has lots of back payments to make, or so, or words to that effect, uh, in giving uh, to charity. And one final time, got a quote from Engels. Uh, <laughs> the English bourgeoisie is charitable out of self-interest. It gives nothing outright, but regards its gifts as a business matter, making a bargain with the poor, saying, if I spend this much upon benevolent institutes, I thereby purchase the right not to be troubled any further, and you are bound thereby to stay in your dusky holes and not to irritate my tender nerves by exposing your misery. You shall despair as before, but you shall despair unseen. This I require, this I purchase with my subscription of £20 for the infirmary. <laughs> Engels is so the missing ghost we needed for this show. Absolutely. But, you know, Scrooge says it's it, it will be like the point of the point. He says he's going to keep Christmas all year round. And the point of Christmas at the end of the film is if you were lu- lucky, your boss will pay off your mortgage. But really, what is that doing? That's guaranteeing kind of future labor pool for his business this charity is entirely self-interested we can scale this up in the present situation which is that like jeff bezos is putting huge amounts of his money into schooling and he goes well it's a great it's a chance for us to give back to the community no it's a chance to create a school to amazon warehouse pipeline you know this kind of charity is self-interested and it is a way of trying to to defang the working class critique of obscene, immoral amounts of capitalist accumulation. I I think that is incredibly important to highlight because because you know the the specific machinations of charity we we see here the whole uh, uh, paying off Cratchit's mortgage and taking care of his child. Uh, this is this is one of the classic acts of union busting. Right, like, like at the onset of our film, what we have, we have Kermit, uh, or I guess Kermit as Bob Cratchit, emerging as the voice of the labor needs of his shop. 
right? He's the one that's kind of being pushed forward to go to the boss and be like, hey, it's too cold for us to work. Hey, can we get Christmas off? Right. He, uh, Cratchit is emerging as a labor leader in inside of Scrooge's, uh, uh, you know, business. Mm-hmm. And, and what happens? He gets bought. You know, Scrooge shows up and, and dumps a bunch of money on him. And like the, the consequence of that is going to be that he is less interested to agitate because now he's a beneficiary of the system. You know, and like like this is this is the distinction between the charity that we can give each other and the the charity that people like Scrooge go for, because you're right, it's completely self-serving. It's completely self-interested. The uh, the point is. Dickens saw Scrooge as a symptom of something, but his solution, his cure is a kind of uh moralistic vaguely religious realization of your class obligations i actually think engels would have seen scrooge as a symptom of something as well but the engels solution is not a kind of personal moralism but is a transformation of society and the seizure of the means of the production of means of production by working class people. Absolutely. I think that's, I think that's a, do do you have have anything else? I think that's a perfect part to go out on. Uh, No, the, the Muppets Christmas Carol, a great holiday movie about why we need full communism. (laughs) (laughs) And, And remember, if you're, if you're organizing in your workplace, don't be a Bob Cratchit. Don't let your boss buy you out. Stick with your, your fellow working class rats and you will make it through. (laughs) <laughs> and i think i think if there's if there's a me- if there's a message of holiday cheer here it's that that we need to have solidarity with each other you know like if, if all of those singing townsfolks would have turned into picketing townsfolks things would have been a lot different in the course of this film and it's not it's not about ending or, or helping one tiny tim it's about helping every tiny tim and preventing that system from ever doing it again uh absolutely what a what a great place what a great place to finish <laughs> uh well uh happy holidays everyone i hope you're hope you're enjoying whatever you're doing right now uh in, in either a uh, country that never responded to covid and is currently in full collapse or a country that responded adequately to covid and can now perhaps enjoy a reasonable holiday season There we go. Should we wrap it there? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I guess, uh, happy holidays, everyone. We'll see you in the new year. <laughs>